real. Like when I'm writing the Britfield series, I'm trying to be as real as possible. Yes, it's fiction. Yep. Yes, it's young adult. It's fun and it's exciting. But I'm trying to make it as real as possible. If they're in the situation, how do they get out of it? And how does it make sense? Is it possible to do this? I don't suspend reality. And welcome to another edition of the Green Jet Ski Podcast. I'm Noah. Thanks for joining me. And that track right there from Vincent Santamaria. Hope dies last. Get that and more of his film score compositions, vincentsaint.com. And now it's time once again for my friend Chad Stewart. He is author of The Britfield Movement. And I call it a movement because it's not just books. It's not just movies. It's not just school plays. What? Yes, go to Britfield.com. You're going to find all about Britfield and the Lost Crown. You're going to find out about book two. You're going to find out about book three, which both of those are spectacular. Rise of the Lion and also Return of the Prince and book four, well on the way. Chad, how are you, my friend? Doing well. Doing well. Well, before we get to the topic du jour, and we have a couple of them today, uh, going to get into the realm of 007, as we like to do. Uh, but tell us the status of book four. I know you're plowing ahead and then approaching pre-production for the very first Britfield movie. Yes, uh, very excited about book four, Britfield uh, and the Eastern Empire. And uh, this will take place in Eastern Europe and Russia. It's about 75% completed. Usually I uh, would have it completed a lot sooner by now. So actually this week I'm diving back in to finish the last 25%. Uh, I got about actually 25 scenes and I'm hoping to do it in about 30 days. And then it's a rigorous editing process. What I have done, because I was a bit burned out, was I jumped back in November and started editing everything that I wrote. And so actually today I'm a, I'm in my last scene that I had physically written, complete scene and stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Come back and um, read your own stuff. And then, but it's nice because I'm, I'm, I'm approaching it very casual. So I get to spend as much time as I want. I can tweak it. I could add here, get the dialogue right and stuff. But this is, um, this is fun. This is an exciting, exciting story. I think this one's going to be unique because uh, book one, book two, and book three take place in a specific country like England, France, and Italy. This will take, this takes place in 10 countries starting in Austria and then moving its way to Czech Republic and Poland and uh, Germany, Berlin, Baltic. So very, very cool. Very excited. I was just going to ask you to give us a little bit maybe of a overview of how Rise of the Lion, The Return of the Prince, are book two, book three, different from book four. And you just kind of just described it and encapsulated it that this is on a grander scale now. It is. And it's fun. And and again, keep in mind in book one, Britfield Lost Crown, Tom and Sarah are 12 years old. And they, they age by one year in every book. So now they're 15. And 15s, if, if you want to go back in your mind and think about what you were like when you were 15. And that's what I'm doing when I'm writing. Um, it's kind of fun. A little bit more mature and a little bit, tiny little thread of romance, right? You're starting to think about others. And um, and so, so that's pretty cool. And I'm keeping these all about 450 pages. So uh, whereas book two was 474 and then book three was 575 pages. Yikes big epic. And so keeping them really, really tight, they're sophisticated, fast moving. It's interesting. There's 84 scenes in book four 
And really every single scene is its own story, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And Absolutely. so crafting it a lot differently. You hit it right on the head there. It's all about crafting. Uh, I mean, you and I were going to get into Beekeeper, the Beekeeper with Jason Statham a little bit later. We were very excited about it. The, yes. the concept was great. And again, we're not going to get into it now, but the delivery not executed well. But that is what you have taken time and care with the Brickfield saga Every scene, every page is well-crafted, and people, when they read these and when they see the first Brickfield movie, which I want you to get into a little bit right now, they're going to see that and they're going to read that. Now, it's, and we should talk a little bit about storytelling or writing as we're talking about the Bond movies or whatever, because it's it's very yep. true. There there are very few uh, good writers out there in, in screenplays, um, unfortunately, and you see that because it's like they've got a great concept movie, but they don't have a great story. And so, um, yeah. Uh, this really delivers, but uh, yeah. So the movies in uh, movie will be moving into pre-production. Uh, we have a final third draft uh, script, very polished, and uh, I'm very excited about the script. It's I was just actually meeting with a one of our board advisors today for lunch, an investor into what we're doing, uh, older gentleman, and it was great. I was going to talk about the movie and its impact. I think really the Britfield movie will have a huge impact on cinema. I think, as we've said before, it's going to be one of the highest grossing films in cinema. It's going to set a new standard for family-friendly, family action movies. And uh, you're going to see things. We're going to knock it out of the park. And again, it's just a a driven story. Yeah. One of your big inspirations over the years has been George Lucas. And Lucas knew what he was creating. I don't think he knew the scope of what he was creating, but he knew he was creating something special. He told this to himself and the people he was making the movie with and then you and I bring it up often. We're laughing at him going into the theater like, yeah, OK, this is going to be a flop. They were speechless when they came out of the theater. This is going to be along the lines of the same thing. I don't think people are going to be laughing at it going in, but they're not going to realize the scope of what Britfield actually is and can be. And they're going to be blown away. Yeah, this is the type of movie that's going to be driven by the age group it's targeted at. And that's going to be middle school and young adult. They're going to be excited. They're going to be revved up. Parents will be going in saying, oh, this will be fun. Kids want to see this movie. Got some good reviews. And then the parents are going to be blown away. And the grandparents are going to be blown away. And they're going to remember why they love movies. That's really what Britfield and Lost Crown is going to do to theater. It's going to remind you of what great movies are all about, what great storytelling is all about, and what the art and craft of movies is all about. And it's been hijacked and it's been compromised. And so we're resetting it, setting a new standard. You know, and one of those channels I like to watch, uh, John Campia on YouTube, he's, he's fabulous. A lot of people like the comic movies. Some people don't. I know you're not a huge fan But one point that he makes just so eloquently, John, and if you're listening, you're spot on with this, is that he says that there's some people out there that say there's comic book movie fatigue. He says that's not true and that what it is, it's good storytelling. And if there's not good stories, people don't want to see it. And that's absolutely spot on. People just want a decent story. They love the comic stuff. They just want to see more good comic movies like Iron Man, like Man of Steel, like the Batman movies that you and I like, Batman Begins. But when you start woken it up and you start putting hidden agendas in there and, you, you know, you have to play to diversity, it's you lose the flavor of what makes these good stories good stories, Chad. Oh, I totally agree. Just focus on the story and, and be a great storyteller. That's what I do with the Britfield series. Uh, and it's funny, too, because we're talking about structure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I am I am the the great devil's advocate. 
you know, as I'm as every single scene, every single paragraph, it's like, does that make sense? How would they know that? What am I forgetting? You know, and I'll be like into a, you know, two thirds of my story and I'll like, go, oh gosh, that's right. I got to go back and fix something. And so I'm always tweaking it. So I'm asking the questions that the reader would ask, you know, like, well, how did they suddenly get here? What about that? Or how did you tie that loose end up? And so I'm doing that all the time. So, so you can just read it and enjoy it and uh, not have to sort of ask questions or fill in, fill in, fill it in. So. Well, and one series, and we're going to be getting into that today for a couple of different reasons that does good storytelling. And it's why you and I have kind of latched onto it so hard has been the James Bond series over the Mm. years, Chad. And it's really probably, I would say the series of movie that even if you're not a Bond fan, you know, James Bond, you know, he's the, the double O agent, the spy that is internationally known. He goes and he saves the day. I wouldn't even say the same for some of the other big franchises out there, but everybody knows James Bond. So what I wanted to do today is to take each of the individual actors that have played Bond and you and I give our favorite Bond movies in those particular iterations of the character because Bond has really evolved over time. I agree. I wanted to come back to what you said about Batman Begins. That's just a great movie, isn't it? Absolutely. That's that's, that's one of my top uh, call it 25, 30 movies. It's just, well, it's it was, funny because most yeah. people say that the dark Knight is the strongest of the three. And even though, don't get me wrong, I do like the dark Knight. I think Batman begins is far superior as a film. Oh, it's a great story that has Batman in it. JJ Abrams said that about the movie jaws. And when that movie came out, that was one of the first quote unquote blockbusters. And uh, obviously made everybody afraid of the water, too. But everyone tried to repeat it because they were trying to repeat the wrong thing, a killer shark, and it wasn't. And and J.J. Abrams at a TED Talk says talks about the family and the father, you know, dealing with his his mm-hmm. his wife and his son. And there's that classic scene where they're sitting around the table and he's just had a rough day and his kid's trying to make him smile. See, that's great storytelling. Um, Die Hard, we've talked about this before. Uh, it's not about it's not about terrorists taking over the building. It's about a a New York cop that, with his tail between his legs going to L.A. to see if he can rekindle his his relationship, his marriage. You know what I mean? And that's the thread throughout. A great story is a funny thing happens on your way to. You know what I mean? Well, let's start with the original, the OG, not my favorite. I don't I say he's not my favorite Bond, but he is the best actor out of the Bond. So, of course, I'm mm. talking about the legendary Sean Connery and. My choice is is interesting, Chad. I don't know if you're going to agree with it or not, because I didn't pick a Connery film that was one of the earlier works. Actually, it came after he retired as Bond, and then he came back to the role, strangely enough, in 1983 in a film directed by Irvin Kirshner, who directed Empire Strikes Back, uh, called Never Say Never Again. And he had moved on. He had started doing other things. Diamonds Are Forever was his last film. Mm. And he said he would never again (laughs) play the role of Bond. But that's how Connery's wife actually suggested the title for Never Say Never Again. She thought it was very fitting because Connery said, hey, never again. But, you know, never say never. And Max Largo was just awesome as the villain. And it's a villain that was based off of the Thunderball novel, which is why it's kind of and I think it's the better movie compared to the Thunderball movie that came out under Eon Productions, quite honestly. I love the movie. The domination game was absolutely brilliant. It was kind of like Chad, a Q gadget, like blown up exponentially. (laughs) And I just wish they would have played the game longer. Mm, Yeah, that would be my favorite. 
Never Say Never Again. I remember when it came awesome. out. You know, yeah, I was I was yeah. a teen and um and saw the, the the Bond movies, but they never really stuck. I think as you as you and I will talk about, we grew up with Roger Moore, mm -hmm. and so Connery was a, a little bit past past our time. But uh, what's interesting, two things that you said is number one, um, Connery was really an actor's actor, and mm -hmm. he 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 did the Bond movie sort of reluctantly, um, and then he kind of stuck on and he did a couple of more, as we well mm -hmm. know. But he wasn't he wasn't gung ho. And he didn't like all the persona that he was getting and all the attention he was getting because, again, he was an actor's actor. And what I mean by that is he sort of drifted into acting but took it very seriously and got into what what many would would know uh, as the method. And um, would actually get got together in London with a very professional acting group, would do plays and do theater. So he came from that kind of background. And so Bond was a little bit silly to him, if you will. He mm -hmm. killed it. He's phenomenal. And as you well know, he used to be a weightlifter and he had to take ballet classes to soften the way that he walked because uh, he was so sort of stiff. Mm -hmm. And they didn't like the voice. They wanted him to change his his thick Scottish accent. He said, no, never. <laughs> and uh, he has become the, the, the iconic character. And it's interesting, just one more thing you said about the director. Isn't that interesting? The director of um, Empire Strikes Back does a Bond movie. Was that correct? It goes to show you yeah. how important the role of a director is. And if it's, oh, yeah. if it's well executed, you can make a great movie. If it's not well executed, it's a flop. I have loved so much his work. Empire, obviously, if it's not your favorite Star Wars movies, it's one of the best Star Wars movies for oh, many yeah. reasons. And I think you can tell in that direction again for Never Say Never Again, Chad. Yeah, and, and you see that with so many movies, you get the director is the captain of the ship. They're going to drive the whole project with the vision, the tempo, the style, the feeling. And you get the, all these movies that come out and, and they tank. And number one, they're just crap stories. But number two, it's like you get some director from a drama of Civil War and he's doing an action. You know, it's just like you don't. How are, how are you doing that? Or they do comedies, but they're doing an action adventure spy thriller. It's like you got to come from that genre. You got to know how to move action. And it's so important. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think that's why that movie pace wise, I think even though it's his last Bond film, I think it works better than the other Bond films. It's just it's that well directed. And I think that's probably why you chose that 1983 film as well. Interesting, too, right? As a character actor, I mean, he came back, you know, in his 50s and 60s and knocked it out of the park, right? I mean, he was like, he was like the hunt for Red October. He was like blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster. He was just killing it. And then obviously one of my all-time favorites was The Rock, which you said was the last official It Bond is movie. the unofficial <laughs> last Sean Connery, James Bond movie. You don't believe it. Look up the article online. Maybe I'll post it in the description and then go watch The Rock and tell me I'm not wrong because mm -hmm. it's it's awesome. Well, let's move on to Roger Moore, who you and I grew up with. So yes. he might not be my favorite, but I do have a soft spot in my heart for Sir Roger. And the man with the golden gun from 1974, I think it kind of stands out from the rest. Christopher Lee is Scudamonga, uh, the assassin with the cool golden gun, which is basically a lighter, a pen, a cufflink, and a cigarette case that just forms into this little contraption, is I think Roger Moore's suavest mission. And I think he's really good acting-wise in this movie. And then they throw some cool set pieces in there as well, Chad, like the wreck of the RMS Queen Elizabeth, mm. which is the uh, new headquarters for MI6. And Christopher Lee, back to him for a second, plays really well Officer Roger Moore. I mean, they they have a really good chemistry together. 
I love that you just said, because that's so important, isn't it? The villain, because you were talking about um, Bond movies and eventually bringing back Pierce Brosnan. As he a says he would do it, too. <laughs> but uh, but you're right, because it's like just because they're like a great two great actors, they've got to have that sort of chemistry together. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I love I love the spy who who loved me. Uh, and I'm guessing favorite. you and I've chatted off the air. I'm guessing it's because of the car. It is. It is many things. I, I liked it as a movie. I thought it was interesting. I mean, it, that huge underwater layer and what they were doing with that. And uh, so that was pretty cool and grand. And I mean, that, the, the gadgets and, and I mean, that to me was the height of the gadgets. That was the coolest car I've ever seen. And and so I think that that's the one that always sticks out. And then Moonraker was was good, but I think it got a little bit silly with jaws you know and and yeah and then um your eyes only i remember seeing it i was so ticked because they had no gadgets you know um but that was okay that one's interesting enough and uh, as he's getting kind of older and stuff but uh well and then there's george lazenby who did one movie unfortunately uh i liked him as bond i don't i i think the only reason that he didn't continue he got into modeling and oh. so they had to go on in a different direction. But it's probably the most unique of all the Bond movies, Chad, because, I mean, it ends in a very different way with, you know, the one woman that Bond falls oh, in right. love with and, and genuinely cares for. And she dies at the end of the movie and he holds her there in his arms. It's like that's kind of a new way to go about storytelling, which I loved it. Yeah, that was an odd ending, and um, I had—I don't think I had ever seen that movie until a couple of years ago. I was on a oh, Bond really? kick. Yeah, it's on a Bond kick, and I'm like, I don't know how I missed it, if you will. You just kind of do, and then I finally watched it, and and you're right, and it's like, uh, it reminds us about Casino Royale, you know, where he kind of loses the one he loves, and absolutely, and so, yeah, it's kind of a research. Yeah, that was from 1969, and then they got not my favorite Bond, but as you and I have also talked about, uh, Timothy Dalton probably plays Bond closer to the novels than any of the other actors they've hired. So I do give him props for that, but not a big fan on screen. The Living Daylights was the first one, 1987. But the reason I would choose License to Kill from 1989, my man, Robert Davi, conservative, mm. just plays a awesome drug lord in that movie. And so for that reason alone, I got to choose the license to kill over the living daylights. Yeah. Probably liked the first one he was in, but I, I agree uh, with you because um, I didn't really like him and I had always remembered him uh, in a negative way. But then last year as I was on a bond kick, I rewatched it and I thought, you know, he did a good job. You know, he wasn't as bad. There's something kind of dorky about him, quite frankly. And, uh -huh. um, and even as an actor and other stuff, he's just kind of, you know, he doesn't, but he played it well, like you said. He played it straight. He played it serious. He wasn't he wasn't uh, going with for the comedy. Um, that intensity that he brought to it, uh, mm -hmm. I thought was good, and it worked, and it worked for him. So, and then on the uh, the realm of Pierce Brosnan, who again has said he would come back and play a Bond villain. I say Eon Productions, if you're listening, take the man up on it. I want to see Bond <laughs> versus Bond. I think that would be amazing. Mm. Uh, but my favorite Brosnan film is. From 1995, GoldenEye, where Bond fights to prevent rogue MI6 agent 006, played by Sean Bean, the amazing Sean Bean, mm. who is Boromir in the Lord of the Rings movies, from using the GoldenEye satellite from uh, waging war against London with the financial crisis. I mean, so many great things about that movie. I just think it was just high octane all the way with the action. The story was well-crafted. And I really like the it goes back to the chemistry aspect again, 
getting that good antagonist that Sean Bean played, I think is that's so pivotal, Chad. You know, what's interesting about that, too, because I'm thinking I did. I think he did four movies, right? Uh, Pierce? He did. He yeah. Did. And it's like that first one had that raw factor that you mm-hmm. want, much like the Born Identity. You know, it was, Absolutely. it was it was real and it was raw. And and that was definitely my favorite. I love the, the character of Sean Bean and playing that off. You know each other. They worked off of each other very well, very sophisticated. And then, and then as, as the more he did, it almost got a little bit back to that. I don't want to say corny, but you know they 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 over. His films became more, and I'm not insulting Roger because that was what Roger did, and I think Roger did it yeah. well. But I think he was Ron Goldeneye, like you just said. That's a nice word to describe it. But then with each sequential film it almost went back to the more Roger Moore type style, which I don't believe fit Pierce. No, no. And Pierce could have played it straight like Timothy Dalton, you know, with and with with a little bit of dry humor. You know, it's just like Connery. You know what I mean? Connery, like Connery wasn't going for the jokes, but he would say something that was just funny or like in a circumstance, it was sort of just a comment and he pulled it off. And, and you always have to have a little bit of humor. Humor is very hard to do. Pierce could have pulled it off, but it got, like you said, he did. He started duplicating Roger Moore's sort of more campy style. Yeah, there you go. Was Goldeneye your favorite then out of yes. the, the Pierce oh, bunch? Yeah. It was absolutely. Yeah. And, beca- and because of what you just said, because of that raw factor. And I mean, to have a guy that, I mean, he's Irish, but, but he, he has a really good, nice accent to, to bond, which I think adds a lot sure. to the character. Yeah, it is interesting that I think that he was cast as a that he has this Irish background, so it was almost uh-huh. uh, sacrilegious. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. Right. Unless it was Northern Ireland, but then again, that's a whole other story. So, uh, but but now we get to I think, uh, and I know we're going to line up perfectly here. The best iteration of James Bond on screen, yeah. which is Daniel Craig. And I thought I was actually along the lines of many. I didn't think I was like, uh, and he's blonde too. This is not my, <laughs> bond. not my bond. Oh, contraire. Yeah. Because right out of the box, Chad Casino Royale from 2006. I mean, the ultimate bond film. Yeah. I mean, the looks at the card table and, and we're talking about a card game. That's several scenes long. There's not a whole lot of dialogue, just the looks from the players. You would see sweat on their forehead. I mean, these long sequences should bore me to tears. And I was right. riveted in each and every way. The music, the subtleties of movement, the brilliant mm-hmm. acting, the real threats of danger. I mean, you know, Bond's going to continue. But there are a couple of points. I'm like, is Bond going to die? I mean, the guy has a heart attack and has a defibrillator to uh, to bring him back to life. And he even flatlined for a moment. And then you have the beautiful Eva Green as well that does not does not hurt the chances of making this the Bond film of all time. That's my that's my pick. Yeah, it is because uh, you have to ask yourself too: how often could you watch any of these Bonds again? You know, could you watch it every mm-hmm. single year? And for for me, I could watch that one every year because it's there, so well done. There are very few. I like them all. There are very everyone on this on this list. I could. I would say Casino Royale. I pull out at least three or four times a year. It's mm. it's that good of a story. It is. And it's, uh, I think, like I said before, I think the Bourne identity had a lot to do with it uh, because the Bourne identity relaunched that spy thriller. Um, the action scenes were real. It was real. He got beat up. You could feel it. You could feel, you could feel his bruises, his, his hurts. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. That's why I said there was a couple of times. Yeah. You know, Bond's most likely going to continue because he's Bond, but there was a couple of times where I, I'm like, is, whoa, I mean, he might actually die here. He's in some pretty big danger. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, like you said, the poison scene, that was great. He, he immediately knew that he was poisoned, goes into the, grabs a salt shaker. Remember that? And, and you know, drinks that real quick, tries and to it, make it to the car. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the, the camera work that they did and the lighting and the sound. You could sense Bond's fatigue and what he was going through. What about that scene on the stairs with the uh, the knife? Or not knife, what would you call that? A uh, lot of sword, but you remember like against those uh -huh. two guys and he like wrapped up his jacket and I mean like, and they're just coming down the stairs and she was kind of being entangled in it and stuff. And it was just like, I mean, that just really, really cool, sophisticated scenes. And again, you have to ask yourself, you know, what do we do now that we haven't seen on the screen? You know, how do we make the action interesting? Even that beginning scene where he goes after that guy in the embassy. <laughs> And that last scene, you know, just brilliant. Just so what brilliant. sets, yeah. uh, I'm curious for you, what sets Daniel Craig apart, especially in Casino Royale? Because I, I, I mean, all of his films are strong, but it's definitely the strongest. What sets him apart from the other Bonds in your eyes? Right off the bat, I'm going to go with the raw factor. He's tough, he's real, and he's raw, and he's not your typical sophisticated. It's almost like he'll put on the nice suit and drink the good champagne but he doesn't really care if that makes sense. Roger Moore, he lives for it. Right. And, uh, and so that kind of, that's, that is kind of your typical agent, you know what I mean? And so he's, he's cast in those roles, you know, because he's, whether he's playing an aristocrat or he's coming to this fancy party. So he's got to wear the great outfits or stay at the nice hotels. Doesn't really care. You know, he's driven. He wants to, even when um, Judy Dench, is it Judy Dench? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she kind of questions him and it's just like, he seems to be sort of numb to killing, which you almost have to. And, and they explain that through the series too, with him. Daniel Craig about his drinking, you know what I mean? You can all, and, and, and there's a, there's a realness to that. You know what I mean? I mean, could you imagine that your job is to kill people? I mean, even if they're bad, you're like taking someone's life and it's just like, man, that's going to be hard. I would say up until yeah. the point of Daniel Craig, I, I mean, it was always kind of joked at, you know, Bond, yeah. Bond you drink too much, but it, there's several times in the Daniel Craig movies where it's like, yeah, you can't keep going on like this you are wrecking your body and he goes through physicals he doesn't pass the physicals yeah and so i think craig's bond is the more real world hey yeah you're not indestructible dude we mentioned this before but i remember when that came out that he was going to be the new bond and i'm like what are you talking about mm -hmm. this guy and so i've used that now as an example because we're casting we'll be casting our movie and we're looking at a lot of actors and i've got my own but i trust the director you sort of have to, and the casting agency to see stuff I don't see. I, again, I'm not succinct into the industry. I don't study it. I don't know these actors. I don't know their careers, if you will. That's not my gig. And so even if someone says, we're going to cast so-and-so as Hainsworth or as Detective Gowerstone, I will have my creative say, but there's a, there's a sort of trust factor that they see something, especially coming from the director, because it's his baby, that I might not see. And I'll use Daniel Craig as that example. You know, who in a million years... No, no one even knew who he was, you know, so. Well, and, and I'm like, he no one knew who he was, his blonde hair. I'm like, this isn't Bond. This is not my Bond. Oh, it's most definitely my Bond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He killed it. He, killed he did. It. Knocked it out of the water. And so I, you know, I implore you, if you're looking for good storytelling, even if the Bond genre isn't really your thing and you're looking for inspiration, go to the Bond series. You're going to see lots of different styles, but really good storytelling in a lot of ways. You'll probably have your favorites that are different from ours. I think that is a place to get inspiration from for sure. Noah here on the Green Jet Ski Podcast. Chad C.R. Stewart is my guest, author of the Britfield Saga. 
and Britt Field and the Eastern Empire. Book four is underway. He's working on it. He's about 75% done. I cannot wait until it comes out. Also, entering the pre-production stage in just a couple of months for Britt Field and the Lost Crown movie number one. And uh, I just can't wait for that to come together. And as we get some of the behind the scenes stuff, we'll share it with you here on the show real quickly before we get onto the next section of the show, Chad, which it does relate to James Bond a little bit. I, I see here on LinkedIn, which I, I follow your movements there. And I knew this, but it's exciting because it's here. The Britfield book series is at the London Book Fair coming up in March. Tell us about it. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, I've got a wonderful agent, Lori, and she's been in the industry for over 30 years. Uh, she's actually from uh, New York, out of L.A., but lives in France. So it's kind of a very cool combination. Uh -huh. So she's right there in Europe, if you will, knows everybody in the industry. And so this will be our third year at the London Book Fair. And uh, and then we're at we're at the October um, Frankfurt Book Fair every October, so that'll be this this year will be our fourth at the Frankfurt Book Fair. By knowing everybody in the industry, she gets a great booth, if that makes sense. And it's a, again, it's location, 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 right? Absolutely. And uh, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds of of publishers and people of the industry there, and she always just gets a killer booth right next to some of the biggies. So we're excited about that. Um, it's going to be a huge, huge year. For us, this will really be a year of global proportions. We've also signed a international distribution deal with a um, distributor out of England, which is very exciting. And so we're in the process of ordering book one, two, and three from a British printer in Cornwall. Nice. And uh, and obviously, it's a, it'll now be in pounds and not dollars. And those will be ordered uh, next week and then shipped up to Lancaster where they're at, and then uh, start to be distributed throughout all of England, or Britain in this case, to all the libraries, to all the uh, bookstores, and to um, all the schools. Uh, uh, people are going to really start seeing a shift because it has been slow for Britfield, but actually that has been by design. You guys have been very careful about what market you go into, how quickly you go into them. You're not at all the major retailers. There's also a reason for that. Yes. If people really dig into how you have set this up, they're going to see this is all by design and coming up rather shortly, this thing's going to just blow up out of the water. That'll be this year. That's where we're at. And it's five years of just of a slow burn, grassroots infrastructure. You technically really need your three books um, out, if you will, um, and which we now have, and with the fourth coming, the movie on its way now it took over two years of, of development, over a year to finish the script, you know, just stuff that you can't rush it, you know, the stuff is just huge stuff going on. So no, we're excited. And uh, it's interesting, there's over a 1000 independent bookstores in uh, England. And I thought that's really fascinating. There's only 1400 in the United States. So wow, they do love the reading. I'm coming into the realm. I love I love it because book one takes place in England and England will be really where we officially launch, you know. Well, now here on the uh, the show, we're going to get into the next section of the show. So we talked about our favorite James Bond movies with each of the individual actors. Speaking of actors, who is going to be the next James Bond? And I did a show a couple of weeks ago. Actually, no, it was last week with Mark Anthony Austin. And we talked about the possibility of a certain actor playing James Bond. And before you laugh at the idea, I'm talking about Jason Statham. Oh, that's right. Is he too old? I say give him one or two movies. Let the guy do his work because he is an amazing action star. 
There's an article. It's eight years old at The Guardian, and it's linked in last week's show. I'll link it in this week's show as well. That's called Jason Statham. Do I want to be the next James Bond? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and Steve Rose gave the interview. And Jason Statham basically, Chad, goes through all the reasons he is good for and can be James Bond. And I would say, yeah, it's eight years old, but you watch movies like The Beekeeper, not well executed, but that wasn't Statham's fault. I mean, he kicked butt like he always kicks butt. Yeah. And as a uh, force outside of the U.S. official government, uh, it was nice seeing him do his work at setting the rights right. And uh, I know you and I both saw the film and he was the best part about the movie. Oh, he was. He drove the film. He was he was the most likable. And uh, like you said, we both had seen the film and love the concept. It's a great concept movie. Um, I, I, again, storytelling is, was not there. There was just a lot of weak links and again, didn't need to be weak links. It's just it's just poor storytelling. And it's almost like and I don't know the, the history behind it, but they've got the concept. They've got a great opening scene. They've got a couple. They, they kind of have it finished as a script. Yeah, and the movie has those weak sections that I don't know why directors or or the producers think will work themselves out while shooting. And guess what? They don't work themselves out. No, shooting. Weak story it. is weak story. It is. And it's um, and it comes across. And there were there was a lot of it in this movie, actually. Um, and we talked about it. Don't want to necessarily ruin it for anyone. But you had a, you had a really great point. And um, it's just stuff that doesn't make sense. And you're seeing a lot of that with with the movies today. It's just like sloppiness. It's laziness and stuff. And it's almost like they think if they just have a lot of action or throw music over it, you won't recognize it. People have to remember, we as a nation and even globally have been brought up on films for the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years. We know good stories. Good stories work because they're based on the three-act structure. They make sense. They tie, they tie in loose ends. There's not something, well, hold on, what are they doing there? Or how did that happen? Or that doesn't make any sense. You don't want that in your story. You don't want that in your script. And we know that subconsciously if we don't even know it consciously. And so when those things, those moments come, it it hits, it takes away from the movie. And it doesn't I mean, need to. Very I simple mean, to fix. Yeah. It's ab absolutely. Statham was perfectly cast in this role for the guy that basically, if the system is failing to work as the beekeeper, see the movie, you'll understand what I'm talking about. He goes in. He takes care of business, balances the scales out and gets the nation and the situation back on course. And the reason he was doing it was great, but then it was resolved very, very poorly. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what? That's, that's it. And it was very anticlimactic. I felt at the end, Chad. That's a really, that's another great point, you know? So what you had in this movie and, and it's done well. It's done over 130 million at the box office. Um, it's already streaming. It'll probably do another 30 or 40. So you're looking at about 150, 60, 70 million dollar movie, depending on the budget. And I'm afraid to ask how much it was, but I don't think it was more than 30 million that it's done well. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of these films recently are, are just money laundering and you're getting $200 million budgets for a $50 million film. So I think they're just lining their pockets, but needless to say, you could do another one of these, but you'd have to have a real tight script. And, and um, I don't know, I don't, I, it just, it blows my mind because it's, it's not that hard. You can't just, it's got to make sense. You can't suspend reality. Yeah. Well, and what was interesting is when we talk about the potential here, because it was really kind of a subgenre of the action spy thriller that if it was executed correctly, it could have been like, OK, this is something brand new. Yeah, it was it was revolutionary for that particular genre. 
I mean, they could have built a whole series out of it. Now I don't really see it happening because it yeah. was not done well. Yeah, and it's like just come to that scene, you know, when when he goes to that industry to wreak havoc. And it's like you should have had the urgency that some alarm was triggered, so the cops were on their way. He's just kind of standing around, you know, after he after he takes out a couple of them. Uh, he leaves that one guy alive, which didn't make any sense. And I know they're trying to tie that together because they're yeah. bringing him back. But what it should have been is just, just as he was trying to go for him, something happened or he slipped out of his hands. And then when Stamos went back to his place, he should have been packing up immediately. He goes back like everything's normal. I mean, just it's so stupid. I'm sorry, but it's just like, come on, guys, be real. Like when I'm writing the Ridfield series, I'm trying to be as real as possible. Yes, it's fiction. Yep. Yes, it's young adult. It's fun and it's exciting, but I'm trying to make it as real as possible. If they're in the situation, how do they get out of it? And how does it make sense? Is it possible to do this? I don't suspend reality. I might've yep. done that in book one with the balloon a little bit, but that's different. You know what yeah. I mean? But you don't suspend reality. You just don't. You can't keep doing that and stuff where, you're, where your readers are going to go, come on. Because well, then you lose them. You lose them. The second you start suspending reality, you've lost them. Well, and if you take Statham out of the picture, the movie, I, I believe it bombs. I, I, I think he's the oh, only, yeah. only thing that kept my interest as long as I was in that movie. But I've also made another suggestion for you. And I didn't even know this movie existed. Shame on me. A movie by Guy Ritchie, who I really like, uh, back in 2005. And I mean, it's not even just an action movie, Chad. It's like Inception meets Casino Royale, if you can picture that. It's smart. It's edgy. It's confusing in a good way because you're like, OK, what's going on? I'm not necessarily understanding this. But then at the end, it all makes sense. And Statham, I mean, he plays on all the emotions of a broken man to perfection and mm -hmm. Even at one point in the movie, the spoils nothing, finds out he's going to die. And th the way that he deals with it mentally is just really amazing. And the action sequences, in my mind, in this movie confirm that the article title I just read, hmm. Jason Statham, do I want to be the next James Bond? Absolutely. I think he could still pull that off. Give me a Christopher Nolan as a, as a director. Give me a Jason Statham as a one-off or a two-off for James Bond. I think you make a lot of money, Chad. Mm. It is interesting. Uh, as I said before, I think he's aged out of that Bond role. And I think he's too well known as the, we already know, we've seen so many of his fight scenes and his moves. You know, we want someone that we, we're not familiar with completely. We, we might know them as a character actor, as an actor. We want them young. We want them 28, 30, 33, 34. Uh, and then they can carry the, the, the Bond role for three to four movies. Yeah, I look right. at it like yeah. this. I mean, they had they had I mean, it wasn't by design. I think they picked Lazenby wanting to do several films, not knowing he was going to get into modeling and only do do one. So I, I, mm. I don't think that went like they wanted it to. Hmm. But that shows me they could get somebody for a one off and maybe they haven't found the perfect bond. Let Statham or somebody like Statham. I say do Statham double O Statham, as I like to call him. Let him do the <laughs> That's my new double uh, O Statham. Get with it. Uh, but let him do the one film or they search for the next perfect bomb that can take it for the next 15, 20 years. Sure. Because the names I've heard thus far that are the, the younger kind of unknowns, I don't really particularly like most of them. Yes. Uh, um, I've heard Henry Cavill, but he's not young anymore either. He's kind of gotten up there. I think he's mid 30s, which isn't. Uh, the age you really want for somebody that's if they're going to play a young bond. 
And what's he been in? I know he was in the the Mission Impossible. And what else has he been in? He's been he was Superman, right? Yeah, he was Superman in in Man of Steel, and a lot of people think he's the definitive version of Superman. I, I yeah, he's not my favorite Superman, but I think he plays a very unique, very human Superman. As you and I touch, it's it's almost it makes it more real. Yeah, he's a very intense actor, um, and he was in uh, the Tudors, if you remember that series, uh-huh. and uh, and played that really, really well and stuff. But again, too, it's the fact that he's already been Superman, if that makes sense. He's already had a starring role, and we want someone that we're not necessarily familiar with. Now, that's not to say that Pierce Brosnan we knew we we knew of him, but he was not a movie star, and and actually, of all things, from Remington Steel, you know, for four seasons. I mean, he was mm-hmm. he was you know he's he was playing like a kind of a. a cocky detective you know what i mean and you know whatever with an interesting little background so he wasn't playing like an act he wasn't in like you know a spy thrilling series or something like that and then they transitioned him over so that that was cool that was unique roger moore came from television the saint go ahead well i'm gonna let you watch revolver and then maybe and then maybe you will come over to my side (laughs) because i mean they even there's an element to the movie again spoils nothing that they consider how you deal with yourself and your inner workings on a mental basis, like a game of chess. Mm. And some of the monologue that goes on is absolutely brilliant. And then you Mm. kind of pair that with some of the sequences that Statham goes through. It is just absolutely brilliant. So that's Mm. why I think it would be to the producer's best interest, to Eon's (laughs) best interest, to at least consider this. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. I'll have to watch that movie. That is your next assignment, sir. Uh, well, let's finish off here on the Green Jet Ski Podcast. Chad CR Classic Stewart is my guest. Classic, because that's his call sign. I've given it to him because he is just a classic. But Top Gun 3 is being talked about, my friend. They have greenlit it. It's mm. currently being penned, a script. So we'll see how quickly it comes into fruition. I don't think it's going to take 36 years. Mm-mm. But I have to tell you, they've seen the success of $1.5 billion of Top Gun Maverick. Insanity. They've seen that it's my favorite movie, and I've seen it 15 times. Uh, Tom, waiting on the jacket. And they know that this is the type of movie people want to yes. see. And I don't think Paramount, in its current incarnation, it may or may not be sold. I don't think they're blind to that. And I think it's a no-brainer. This is, with Mission Impossible kind of wrapping up, Yes, we believe this might be their next franchise that has some longevity to it. Yeah, and Tom's not getting any younger either. And so they were able to pull it off and they did it miraculously and brilliantly. And you and I were talking about it before it came out. You know what I mean? And I I thought you you even use it now in some of your presentations for Brickfield. I do, actually. And um, I knew it would be good because it was Tom Cruise and it has a seal of approval. He doesn't invest in, in tankers. And I think um, um, Jerry Brockheimer was in, in on it. So it's like, that's that's gold. And um, Isn't it refreshing, Chad? And not to interrupt you, but isn't yeah. it refreshing to have, there's very few actors. Denzel is another one that you and I uh, know, like when we saw Equalizer 3, where yeah. you take a title, whether you're super invested or not, and you're like, I will walk into this movie and the degree of how much I love it, that's subjective. But I know I'm going to have a good time. I know I'm not mm-hmm. going to be pandered to. And I know I'm, I know I'm going to walk out entertained and happy. Yeah, and it knocked it out of the park. It was phenomenal. It was very well done. Uh, tied in so many loose ends, some that you caught that I didn't, um, which I thought was fabulous. 
and it worked. I mean, it worked as, as they did a beautiful job. It's a great example of a great story. Cause even if you had Tom Cruise and even if you had the, it, it, it could have gone sideways very quickly, but with all of that said, let's not wait five or 10 years and I get schedules and stuff, but let, let's get it moving in the next couple of years and, and make it work and cap it off. So that could be very cool. I think cool. they're wrapping. If I, if I hear it right now, they're wrapping up some stuff with Mission Impossible, Dead Reck well, not Dead Reckoning anymore, because that's not it was going to be part one and part two, but now they've separated that. It's going to be called something else, Mission Impossible Eight with a different title. I don't even think, Chad, and I don't even know really whether they're going to give it a full movie for the Dead Reckoning part one follow-up to the story. I think they're maybe going to wrap that up fairly quickly in the first half hour of the movie, unless, I mean, until I hear otherwise, but it sounds like they're going in a brand new direction for that. So all that to say, maybe that should be the next thing Tom Cruise does. Hey, we need to get this out there because one, Tom's not getting any younger. And two, I kind of think the environment is rich for it right now. It is, it is. And it's like it re it rekindled it, but don't expect that to be rekindled again in, in five to six years. You know, right. and you just, you know, uh, it is interesting though. You, you mentioned that I think Tom said he'll keep doing mission impossible movies as long as there's, I thought, and everybody else did that. Okay. They're wrapping it up. It was kind of, I guess more of a rumor. Uh, this is going to be the, the, the last hurrah, okay. but then Tom, said hey basically i mean don't quote me harrison can do it you know harrison's uh getting up there in age he ain't hanging it up he's still doing indiana jones sure i can do this with mission impossible too liam neeson you know still playing the action hero yeah if done if done well cary grant you know comes to my mind you know he was killing it in his later age with catch a thief mm -hmm. and, and wooing grace kelly and charade with audrey hepburn one of my all-time favorites and so it can work sean connery what was that one movie he did with um, Zeta Jones? Entrapment. I think it was yep. Entrapment. Yeah. But sometimes the older they get, I, I mean, it's it's almost kind of like a fine wine. They do yeah. get, and I'm not going to say they get better, but they uh, there's a little bit more flavor to the performances that they give. It was really well cast going back to Maverick, you know, with his love interest. Absolutely. About the same age, you know what I mean? That wasn't pushing it. And uh, it, was a, it was a great hook. So, uh, but no, that'd be, that'd be phenomenal. And, but it uh, shows, but and as we end here, Chad, I mean, it shows I brought up Maverick one because I think everybody cares about Top Gun three. I know you and I do. Um, it, it, like I said, the environment is rich for it, but that's why you use Maverick in your presentations because of how well crafted the stories are. Again, it gets back to that common thread, how well crafted the stories are and you are taking your time. Tell us right now as we close what you have done in the process with making book four. So you did about 70 per 70, 75% of the story, but then you stopped and there was a reason you stopped, but tell people what goes into that process so that you can make this book as tight and which is important and as structured as possible. As one can imagine, there's a tremendous amount of time that goes into crafting a book or at least my books in Britfield. Uh, I spent four months just outlining the entire story. So that, that means that I wasn't writing scenes. I was outlining every single scene, making sure it fit, made sense, what would naturally come. So when I started it, I had 84 scenes. I knew where the whole story was going. I had all my plot points. I used the three-act structure, but I, I've expanded on it now where I have plot point 1A, plot point 1B and then midpoint, and then plot point. Actually, I got plot point two, A, B, and C. And these are huge shifts or revelations. And so very, very well crafted, very well structured. 
Um, to give you an idea of how important structure is also, when I took over the movie script for the third draft mm -hmm. of Brookfield Lost Crown, mm -hmm. um, I spent one month, um, literally 30 days full time. And, um, and this is a story that I already wrote in a script that was already supposedly you know, crafted. Um, and I got it from, from 168 to 148. So from 168 pages to 148 pages, I fixed scenes, I cleaned it up. I came back in January. So, so basically I was done. I got everything structured correctly. I came back in January, you know, two months later and spent 10 days on a final edit and polish. And I neither added nor took a page. Isn't that interesting? 10 days of editing. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't, I didn't lose two pages. I didn't add two pages. That's tight structure, you know? And so that's how these books are done. And um, just to give you an idea. So I got, I got 75% of it done. And, and what happened is you sort of hit, you do sort of hit a wall. I've already figured out the scenes and I know where it's going. But, oh, my gosh, it's like exhausting to write the next scene with, if you will, new words and language, you know, that I'm not using. This. They keep coming into different towns and stuff. And it's hard in Eastern Europe because, quite frankly, all the towns are kind of the same. It's a medieval look. It's the it's the tiled rooftops. It's like, my goodness gracious, how else am I going to describe it? And so I was kind of running out of out of words and language. And I've used I used everything I had at, at my disposal to drive it. And so I had to take, a, I had to take a break so I could sort of uh, refill the tank. And, uh, well, and, and it's nice because I mean, then you're still working on the book. You're making it tight and you're taking away things that don't work and you're making things a lot more streamlined at the same time, your brain is recharging creatively. And by the time you're done, which I believe is just about now, you're going to fire on all thrusters and be able to finish this thing up. Yeah, and I'm getting psyched for that. That's going to probably happen this weekend that I get I pull the trigger and get back into finishing the last scenes and stuff. I'm psyching myself up. But to give you an idea too, when it's done and I start my paper edit and I do this three times, come all the way through it with a paper mm -hmm. edit, I guarantee you for my 450-page book, I will probably only gain or lose one page. So I'll spend, let's say, six weeks editing my entire book, You know, filling in scenes, maybe cutting something. And it will be right around one page. And that means that that the story is tight, the structure's tight, no extra words. I'm even doing searches like I did today when I was editing for a phrase that Tom uses. And I'm like, I want to make sure I didn't use that phrase before. And I didn't. Even words that I'm using or, or verbs, I'm like, how many times have I used that verb? I'm like, ah, well, three times. Yeah, three times, but that was 50 pages ago. So that's yeah. the type of stuff that goes into this story. What a lot of people don't realize, too. So you mentioned a page. To actually get rid of an entire page collectively, that's a lot because you're literally slicing here, you're slicing there. You're not slicing like big giant chunks. So a lot of people don't realize my point is how much a full page when you're subtracting. I mean, that is a lot of content. It is. Yeah, it is. There's a lot that goes into a page. But it's. I think this is will probably be the best, uh, and it should be. As a writer, you hope to... Con complete, you know, you continue to get better as a writer and, and more sophisticated and better storyteller. And this thing's phenomenal. It's very, it's very, very tight. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about book four with Mission Possible. And it's just like, you know, they kind of, it doesn't need to be three hours long in a $300 million movie. And that's kind of where they made their mistake and no offense. And I know it's fun to watch, but it's not practical. And number one, the budget, way too much money. And, and number two, too long. And so like, you know, in book three, Britfield and the Return of the Prince, 575 pages. It was cool. It was my epic. It was Lord of the Rings. You know, it was, it was that, it was a crescendo to the trilogy. 
But now I'm coming back and I'm keeping these things at 450 pages for all the right reasons. And it's like, if I can't tell it in 450 pages, then, you know, so. Books, movies, even more so. People now, uh, Chad, are uh, they have very short attention spans. True. And if it seems like something's dragging on, they're either putting down the book or if it's a movie, they're walking out. I know people that have walked out because a movie has just been too darn long. <laughs> and I would say, I'm not going to say I did because I really thoroughly enjoyed Mission Impossible Dead yeah. Reckoning. I thought it was fabulous. But I did see people get up and walk out. And when you're approaching 245, you're going to lose some people. Yeah, it's just you got to be smart. You know, keep it at two hours and, and 30 minutes. That's that's kind of the max. You know, the Britfield movie is going to be two hours and 15 minutes. At least that's what we're aiming for. It won't feel like it, you know, but there is just a certain there's certain things that you have to keep in mind and stuff. So. So I think they learned a lot from that. I don't know why, because they already they had like what six movies up mm-hmm. until then mm-hmm. to to base it on, and they were they were all successful. They all did well. I think they were all around 150, 160 million. Suddenly, boom! You know, three hundred million dollars. We're doubling the budget. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. extend it another twenty five minutes. Throwing that much money does not guarantee success in yeah. any way. Well, yeah. what we're going to do too, too, uh, now that we're at the end with Chad C R Stewart. Next time we have him on, we've been doing a chat. Well, we always chat because we're friends, but I'm going to have chat on next time. And we're going to take a deep dive into book one, something that we've never done before. And we're going to just take various scenes. I've read the book. If you haven't, I suggest you check it out. It might be thoroughly enjoyable for you to listen to the show. Since you've already read the book, go to Britfield.com, get your first chapter there of Britfield and the Lost Crown. And we're going to take various scenes and break them down and find out why Chad structured them the way he structured them. And I think it'll make a really interesting chat, Chad, to to pick your brain on what really makes up a great book. I'd love to do that because, you know, like especially with book one, but obviously the other books, it is very layered. It is very well structured. And it's interesting. That's what's making the movie so great the movie script and that's hard too right i've got a 400 page book that i got to get down to 150 screenplay pages it's phenomenal the the, the screenplay is phenomenal not because i wrote it because i i didn't i came back and edited it on the third draft but it's it's the structure of the story and stuff hits so beautifully and so perfectly and the twists and the turns and and it's like the scene at Windsor Castle. We'll get into it, but it's just like, it's so well set up, you know, from an, a wonderful moment to a huge revelation, to betrayal, to uh, being chased, to the cops coming, to having to escape. I mean, it's just like, it's just boom, 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 boom. And it's just like, you know, you haven't, it's kind of the um, 24 with mm-hmm. Keith Sutherland, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, okay, he's hanging off the building on a rope that's starting to- Starting uh, to fray. You know, starting to fray. He's being shot at from a helicopter with a machine gun and there's a bomb in the building just about to go off. How can we make this scene more intense? Literally. Like, I mean, it's just like they just kept raising the bar and I learned And that's why we've always done it in the past. When you want to learn something, I mean, we mentioned James Bond before and I still hold true to that. You want to learn something about how to take it up a notch, watch the series 24 because they had to continually do that for season after season, scene after scene. And Chad, they were successful at it. I learned, I've told people this before, and it was recommended to me, gosh, I guess, what, 13 years ago by a Harvard professor of all things. And he said, uh, he said, watch 24. And I, I started on a, my first quote unquote binge and I watched all six seasons in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I, everything I, I, every single thing I, I learned about writing action and story 
I learned from watching that series. And I finished it, and then I started writing Britfield Lost Crown. And so all of that went into it. Yeah. Get Kiefer Sutherland for a small cameo in the book or in the movie. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. That would yeah. be kind of cool. We talked about uh, maybe Lucas coming back out of uh, non-directing retirement. and Lucas is going to be your director. Denzel <laughs> is going to be your cab driver. And we got to get a great part for Kiefer, too. And then we're okay. Safe. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, right. There you go. Okay. Chad C.R. Stewart, uh, 60 seconds left. Tell people if they have not read any of your Britfield books, what sets it apart from other series, other franchises, and what they should expect as they dive into the first pages of book one? I think it's a fun, fast-paced action adventure that takes place in present time. And so I think that's really, really important. It's not futuristic, post-apocalyptic, or in the past. I don't use any of the devices that pretty much all fiction's using now, uh, especially young adult fiction with magic or witchcraft or occultism. I don't suspend reality. And um, and it's very intriguing. It's very based in truth, in real history, real geography, art, architecture, culture. And I bring you into the world of England, and I let you feel it and breathe it. And the book reads like a movie, and uh, and the series reads like a movie. And it's a lot of fun. You travel the world with it. Book one's in England, book two's in France, book three's in Italy. And so, uh, meanwhile, high-octane, fast-paced character development, many layers, lots of twists, lots of turns, revelations, things you're never expecting. I was actually telling Harvey, he was a gentleman I met today for lunch, about a, a major revelation in book four, and it's going to blow the readers away. That's awesome. If you want something that's going to take you to places of the earth you haven't seen, maybe you've only dreamed of seeing, and again, as Chad said, authentically, it does not suspend reality, kind of like Indiana Jones, kind of like National Treasure, but it's going to be a heck of a ride, and you're going to be with Tom and Sarah every step of the way. Chad, thanks for stepping by the show just for a few minutes talking Bond and Statham and Britfield and so many other things and cannot wait until we pick apart book one the next time you're on the show. That'll be fun. That'll be a great deep dive. That's what I really like to do. Talk about the writing and the choices one makes. And yeah. Excellent. Well, we will uh, do that next time. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Noah here on uh, the Green Jet Ski Podcast. Go to Britfield.com. Thank you.